Simple Beep, Episode 48, The Apple Community at Release Notes. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And this is our first episode back after we attended the Release Notes conference in Indianapolis. It was a really great experience, and we got the chance to interview five members of the Apple community about their experiences with classic Mac hardware and what the community was like back then. One thing before we get to the conversations, we'd like to thank Stephen Hackett of Relay FM for lending us the equipment to record on-site at the conference. It would have been way harder to put this episode together otherwise. Stephen also organized a Mac Draft podcast episode with Christina Warren and us at Release Notes as well. For those of you who are listening to us because of that episode, welcome. You can find all of our previous episodes at simplebeep.com slash episodes. And now on to the interviews. First up, we talked to Greg Pierce of Agile Tortoise. I run an independent software company that primarily does iOS apps and have for have been doing them since 2009. Manton Reese of Riverfold Software. I'm an independent developer, I guess now. I quit my job uh, a little over a year ago. And I work on iPhone software, web apps, uh, blog at manton.org. I've been for a while. And I have a podcast called Core Intuition about iOS and Mac development. Here's Rich Siegel of Barebones Software, who mentioned in his talk that he's been working on Mac software for longer than some of us have been alive. Well, in fairness, I think somebody else might have pointed that out, but I just reinforced it. <laughs> David Sparks of Mac Sparky and the Mac Power Users Podcast. I am a, a Mac nerd of yes. the first order. Yeah. In fact, I had, I'm the only one who spoke here that had the 128K Mac and a slide. And Gene McDonald, formerly of Smile Software and currently of App Camp for Girls. We wanted to start from the beginning, so we asked everyone what their first Apple hardware was, starting with Gene. I got my first Mac in um, 1996 or seven, um, but it wasn't a Mac. <laughs> it was a clone. Oh, wow. I, Do so, you remember exactly which one it was? It was a UMAX. I could probably figure out the... Um, the model number, but one of the things that was appealing is that you got a free scanner with it. Like right. Umax was a scanner maker, and then they were making clones. Right. So I, obviously, I wasn't like a Apple fanatic. I was just needed. I had just gotten on the platform. I had just taken um, a intensive course in web design, and we learned on Macs. And so it was really my first time really using Macs. So I'm not like the, a Mac user from the '80s. I'm um, I'm a '90s Mac user. Well, if we're going all the way back, the first computer in my household was an Apple II. Um, my dad worked for IBM for his whole life as a mainframe programmer, so he was a, very much of a geek and a nerd and an early adopter of technology in the 70s and stuff. So when I was young, we had a, the first Apple II that was commercially available, yes, with the tape drive and, <laughs> and, and everything. Um, so I was exposed to Apple products early on. Now, naturally, since he was an IBMer, once the PC came out, he shifted over to the PC, and that's what I had in my house. Um, and pretty much what I used through, you know, computers he helped me get for college and things like that were all PCs. The first Mac of my very own was a Power Mac 7290, um, which was a fun and useful machine, not the bottom of the line. Uh, performers of the time, but uh, not the top of the line either. So the first 
that I owned was uh, old Mac, the Mac classic. Right. And I knew, so I was in high school, I guess, and it was the first actual computer I owned. And I knew it had to be a Mac because I kind of fell in love with it. Actually, I went to my uncle's once when I was young and I think it was, he had an SE Mac SE and I didn't use the Mac, but I had, I got the manual for the Mac, uh-huh. you know, at his house, and I was just kind of looking through the manual, and I just kind of immediately fell in love with, like, just the interface and just, like, how friendly and personal, you know, the, the Mac was. And so when it came time to get a computer, I begged and pleaded that it had to be a Mac, and the Mac Classic was more affordable than most <laughs> yeah. Macs. But, yeah. um, so that was the first one that I had. So in 1983, 84, I was a junior in high school, and we had Apple IIs. Mm-hmm. And so we did some work on those, a lot of basic. But in, in 84, um, later in the year after the very first Macs came out, at home we got what was called the Fat Mac. Instead of 128K, it had 512K. And we went up market and got the external disk drive and... And the image writer printer, the first one, the slow one. And that's when I started using the Mac for programming. Um, we had Macintosh Pascal, which was the interpreted Pascal. It wasn't very fast, but it was um, very capable. And that's when I actually started writing code on Macs. Not to ship, not commercially, but just learning how to program and and writing code and seeing things run and seeing them break and... And that was the very beginning. I had an Apple II. Okay. And the um, I did not get the original Mac, though. I couldn't afford it. It was too <laughs> expensive. But the, um, when it released, I was a senior in high school. My family got me an Atari ST, which was at the time the like the second class GUI. It wasn't bad, but it was a computer. And the um, but when I got to college, they had a whole lab full of Macs. Mm-hmm. So. My, the first time I spent a real significant amount of time on Mac was um, in college. We then asked, what about the Mac made our guests fall in love with it? The, the computer that I totally fell in love with was my G3 PowerBook Pismo, black with the white Apple logo on it. And um, that was just an exciting, beautiful machine. And then I'm that, then I was totally hooked. <laughs> I could never go back even to a tower. or I, I only wanted laptops after that. The same reasons most people will give you. Everything just felt more elegant on the Mac, more easy to use, less frustrating. Um, and I was doing a lot, still doing a lot of design work at the time, less development. Um, so it was more of a natural fit. And certainly I used PCs and other things. Um, but there was something about just like this is how this is just a better way to do computers. Like this is how <laughs> this is how things should work. Um, it just seems well designed, thoughtful, personal, like relaxed, just kind of friendly. You know, the smiling Mac. Mm-hmm. Well, once I started using the Mac, I could never go back. And I haven't used a PC. I barely can. If they say, "Oh, you can use our computer," I go, "No, I can't." I think what I loved the most about the Mac was the way everything was directly manipulated. Um, You still had to type code in, but you could slide windows around on the screen, and even if the windows were full of text that you had typed in, you could layer them and you could move in unimportant stuff to the back and bring important stuff, the thing you were working on, to the front. Um, Macintosh Pascal had 
something called the observe window, which although I had done some programming on um, the Apple II and on some mainframes, there was I'd never seen anything like it. It was a debugger. You could mm. step through your code, and there was this fun little finger that pointed at the line that you were executing. And, and the observe window uh, was like a two-column spreadsheet. You'd type an expression on one side, and it would show you the results of the expression on the other. And it might be a variable name, or it might be A plus B. didn't matter. Uh, and then there was the instant window, and you could you could enter whatever you wanted into the instant window and actually run it. And just sort of all of those pieces, the way that they came together in in a fashion that nobody had ever done before and I had never seen before, just captivated me. This this sort of level of control over the computer um, without the the intermediate layers of complexity. I grew up with command line, you know. Mm-hmm. The first computer I used was a Tandy color computer too. Had four K of RAM. Four <laughs> K. <4K. Yeah. laughs> and um and so I wrote basic programs on it and did other stuff. But then so I worked in command line. I never liked the IBM computers. Mm-hmm. I mean at the time they I don't know they were and um I talked about it in my presentation on the uh just the user interface and the design of the Mac was awesome. The uh, I remember in the uh, control panel, the the clicker, it had a tortoise and a hare to mm-hmm. indicate fast and slow. And I was like, wow, I mean, people really... It was like, it, for someone who had been on a, a command line, that stuff is just... It was just amazing. So that's when it started for me. We were really excited to be able to experience the present-day Apple community firsthand, and we wanted to know about the way this community interacted in the past, you know, pre-Twitter. So we asked everyone what it was like to be active in the Apple community around the time that they got started with the Mac. I read David Pogue's book uh, at Mac OS 9 for Dummies. It was the best book I ever read. I just loved it, and it made me, like, throw myself in front of David Pogue at one Macworld Expo and say, I am one of your hugest fans. And we're actually still buddies, like, on Twitter. Um, he and I have gone to things together. I, don't, I mean, he's, I'm not saying he's one of my best friends, but he's one of the best technical writers ever. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to buy printed books to read about web design. They were, it was popular to do that. Sometimes they came with CDs in them with, you know, uh, assets and it's added value. <laughs> added value, right? And there was this one book that everybody who was a web designer back then read called Creating Killer Websites, David Siegel. He um, had this pretty cool website, of course. He created a killer website of his own. So he had a blog, and he, he published like really long, heartfelt articles about his life and thinks he's quite a, a um, poly, you know, interested person in terms of he designed the font Tecton, which may be before your time, but Tecton was very popular, sort of the Comic Sans of its day. Well, but much better than Comic Sans. I mean, it was an architecture um, font. And he, he had a lot of interest. And so people were following that blog. And he said, you know what, I'm going to start a mailing list so that because people want to discuss the blog posts after he wrote them. And so this is 1998, and I'm like, oh, I'll sign up for that. And he, and he called the mailing list Dave World. And because uh, he, humble. Dave, he was humble. <laughs> humble is not one of the things people really associate with him. And so it was mostly web designers on it. 
But um, Dave eventually got bored with Dave World. But Dave World continued, and we just call it DW. It is still going today. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, it's no longer a mailing list because nobody wants to manage that. Yeah. But we had you know, geeks who would had a server and said, you know, we had a listserv for Dave World. It's how I met one of the founders of Smile, even though he was my neighbor in my apartment building, and we would wave to each other, but we didn't really know each other. But his business partner's girlfriend was also in Dave World. And she and I said, let's get together. And she, when she heard where I lived, she said, oh, you live in the same building as Philip. And then they invited you know, us both to do something together. And then Philip and I became really good friends. And I mean, even before he started Smile, I, I got this email from Philip. He's that, that I can always remember that subject line was like, um, fun, hard work, but fun. And he said, you know, we're going to be showing off this new product we made at Mac World Expo, which you like to come down to San Francisco and work at the booth with us. I'm like, yeah, I'm interested. You know, like Macs, I'm, I'm kind of into them now, and I'm curious. <laughs> and then that was amazing. Mac World, that's where I totally met um, the community around Macs, which is really strong. And it's a little different from the indie developer community. Mm-hmm. Some overlap, but there are people more like the Mac user group type people, and um, people who are just, you know, they love the Mac. They don't write programs for it. When I was first getting back into Macs, I was very into the early web, and I was teaching myself to do development on doing mostly web development stuff. Um, I was publishing. I had done a print magazine with a friend, and I was bringing it to the web. And for the web of the time, it was a large-scale project, and I needed tools to be able to manage hundreds of pages of reviews and poetry and articles and stuff. So I got into Userland Frontier. I don't know if you're familiar with that software, um, but it came out. It was originally kind of a competitor to AppleScript, um, and it used the open scripting architecture. And it had an object database to it, um, and it was basically it was only on the Mac at the time. And Dave Weiner, the guy behind it, um, was experimenting with this sort of web publishing stuff. Um, so I got very involved in that community, and that got me more involved in the Mac indie software community and stuff, doing the web publishing on the Mac at the time. So at the beginning, when I first uh, had a Mac, I didn't really know that many other Mac users, and I would get in like heated debates with people <laughs> about you know like why the Mac was superior, and I didn't yeah. really know what I was talking about, but I but I tried. But I did. I had a friend in, in high school that uh, also was a big Mac user, and and so from that point on, I mean we you know we would. Um, we would hang out and talk about Mac stuff, stay up late trying to learn how to program and 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 get into Mac development and just hacking things on the Mac and just everything you could possibly do. Destroying everything in ResEdit? Basically, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. ResEdit, lots of fun with that. He was also a big HyperCard fan, so he would make HyperCard stacks and, and, and do stuff like that. Um, and at that point is when, like, I mean, getting back to question about if there's anything at, about Apple that like stood out like it was at that point that I got more into it and like read books about you know Steve Jobs oh, and yeah. like watched I remember watching like ridiculously small like quick time movies of like the introduction <laughs> of the Mac and, mm-hmm. and that that kind of history and really got more into it the very first time I got paid to write code on a Mac was when I was an intern uh, internships are usually unpaid but in mm-hmm. this case it was a, a a job um and 
I worked for somebody, and, and so there was a community where I worked of of the Mac guy and me. <laughs> and I worked with a bunch of scientists and engineers who were sort of dubious about the whole thing. They're like, you know, Macs didn't have this. Uh, this was in '85, uh, and there had been some speed bumps to the Mac, and then '86, and the Mac II came along, and. They said, well, you know, Apple's not using the latest hardware. The Macs aren't really good for anything. We can't use them for science and engineering because they're not fast enough. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I've, I've written code that does things fast. I, I know what these computers can do. So this, this, sort, of, this sort of nucleus of, and it was a very early form of this religion that we sort of heard about for a long time, this, this and I, I hate breaking it down in these terms, but at the same time, it's it's true. There was sort of this um, this community of believers demonstrating to the doubters that this was possible, and and that's that's where the kind of where the community started. Uh, then I went off to college, and college students are you know no no matter what the generation is sort of capable of of factioning themselves very efficiently so there were the mac people and then there were the pc people and and uh, the mac people formed the community and and actually a lot of the folks that i became friends with in the mac community at college in the mid 80s are still doing it they're still writing code on macs um they're uh, principal scientists at Adobe and Microsoft and, and Google, and they're still writing code on Macs. It's not the same code, and they're not the same Macs, but uh, that's and that's an instance of where the community started and, and how it persists. Back then, there weren't that many Macs, or there was actually back then there weren't that many computer users. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Uh, people started using it kind of for getting work done, but I was a nerd, so I was trying to program it and do stuff with it. And so I definitely had my groups of friends, and we had BBSs and, you know, all the crazy stuff that happened in the old days. And we wrapped up talking about the future of the Mac, iOS, and general Apple community. What I totally did not anticipate and has become very important about AppCamp is that the volunteers who are all women or um, trans, uh, non, non-cis men, right. <laughs> uh, but mostly, mostly women. Um, they have formed such a tight community, and they've met, met women they wouldn't have met otherwise in their communities coming together to do a project that is really important and close to their hearts. And then, you know, now they have this group of women who are all in the tech field, some of them are developers, some in other areas of software development. And that community is super strong. We had, at the last Dub Dub, there were like 15 of us there, like not all with badges for, for the Apple event, but also people at Layers and people at AltConf, people who just came um, to, to do fundraising for AppCamp. And we took, taking a picture in Moscone, lobby there under the apple logo and like 15 women you know lined up like you like i never saw anything like this before we started app camp that these um these women would get together and uh, i think um for the apple related community whether developers or users we're going to see more of that 
kind of um, uh, interest group, you know, not just women, also people of color. I mean, even fewer people of color than women, which is saying, like, something. And um, the people who are in the trans uh, LGBT um, community also very underrepresented um, in in the developer community that are getting together and, you know, saying, hey, we can be together and, and do something uh, worthwhile and support each other. When you bring in a variety of ex- people of different experiences, you'll, you'll find social life becomes more rich. I've always found a great group of kindred spirits in the iOS and Mac development communities. And obviously, we mostly interact through social media, Twitter, and all. Um, and a couple times a year, I get the opportunity like this at a conference to, to meet up with, with like-minded people. But, uh, you know, it's like any community. You have shared experience and knowledge and you can make the jokes that only those people will get or uh, hear their jokes that only you will get. (laughs) And there's a great sense of camaraderie uh, in this community. I've always felt having been involved and it's been a while, but when I was involved more in Microsoft development and stuff, and I did go to some of those conferences, I, I never got that same sense of camaraderie and willing to help willingness to help each other and share Information and I'm sure it's there. I, I, you know, maybe I never found the right groups, um, but you know, I've always felt that with this group. Yeah, I mean, the community is always—it's always been, I think, really special. Um, go, I mean, it, the community has changed a lot, like with the iPhone um, when the iPhone came out, and just like a bunch of new developers. But I've always felt there's something kind of special about. The community, even going back to the earlier days when it felt like we were the minority and there was like not that many Mac users um, out there, and especially, yeah, just meet, meeting up with people, even if it's just once a year at WWDC or conferences like this, um, being able to see the same faces and use their apps and and talk to the same you know same people about issues they're going through, it's always been pretty great. So in some ways. It's much easier to build communities now because it's that much easier to communicate. Same root word, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure that the communities we build so quickly and easily today are quite so tightly knit as they used to be. Um, back in the day, he said, waving his cane, um, you could know who your customers were if they filled out a registration card and mailed it into you. And... Uh, and then you'd have a record of them. You would know who you're, you'd put a face to the name if you went to a trade show, which, they're, I mean, they're all gone now, right? <laughs> There's no more Macworld Expo, and, and other such things are a dying breed. Well, I, I actually have a talk where this is a main point in it about the indie developer community. Um, and our wilderness, which is post-WWDC, you know, I would say 2014, Whenever, you know, they instituted the lottery. Yeah, when you can't just decide that you're going to go because it's no sure thing. Yeah, so um, it's not the gathering that it was for the people who have been doing um, Mac apps or later iPhone apps. Well, and it was a replacement Mac world for some people who even weren't developers. They just said, oh, well, you know, half of the people that I knew were developers, so I'll just go to DubDub anyway. 
Yeah, but it's a completely different vibe. I mean, Macworld, first of all, there are tons of women there, mm. tons of families, grandparents. Like, it mm. just was, that's what made the Mac interesting to me was it wasn't what I was expecting. The first one I went to in 2004, I thought it would be a lot of, you know, pe- young guys who were computer nerds. But it was, you know, the crafters and the, um, you know, the people who made art or did other like things, cook, cooking apps and all that kind of stuff that is very far removed from iOS application development. It's online more now. Like the the Apple user groups, the Mac user groups, mm-hmm. they um, I've spoken at several of them. I mean, they're definitely a lot older than they used to be, the people that go to those. It's not the younger generation is looking to online resources. I, but I, I don't think it's ever going to go entirely. I think part of it is the success of Apple. I mean, I remember when I first came back uh, and got my first Intel Mac, it was still rare enough that I'd be in airports and people would see me using a Mac and they'd come up and want to talk to me about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it was like... And then, like, I'd go to legal conferences and I was the only person there with a Mac. <laughs> I was in the wilderness for about 10 years. So, you know, I was very happy to come back. And and I was happy to see some of the old apps I knew. I think, I think the BB Edit I had used before and now it was still around. And mm-hmm. so some of those apps, and then I found tons of new ones that were very exciting. And, and, you know, I, I felt like even though they had the OS 10, you know, transition, they really kept the operating system all very loyal to the old, to the old operating system. It wasn't difficult to get back into it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, because I'm a nerd and, and my particular bent of, of nerdiness at this point is not so much coding as it is productivity hacking. You know, I want to get my work done faster and what, you know, what are the tools available for that? Yeah. But I think it's interesting to talk about workflows and productivity on iOS because that is that kind of tinkering community Mm -hmm. that was everyone who was into the Mac in the very earliest days because it came out of Apple II and before that, like homebrew computing. And that was the, the origin of it. And I don't think that that community has shrunk. We've just gained so many people around us who yes. use Apple products mm-hmm. in different ways, new ways. And uh, I don't think that our community is endangered in any way. We're just part of something bigger now exactly. because Apple is not doomed yeah. anymore. And as a community, we're all a bunch of introverts. Yeah. So it's hard to like look at each other and like talk. I, I think that is an issue. Yeah. In some ways, I think the internet made it easier for people. I think nerds will always find each other, and there's definitely a lot. It's a lot easier now than it used to be. Certainly. Like even just like somebody could put together a Slack user group of Mac SE enthusiasts, and you put it on the internet, probably exists already. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and if that's what you want to talk about, there's a group of people out there that'll talk to you about it. So that wraps up our interviews with members of the classic and present day Apple community at Release Notes. We'd like to thank Greg Pierce, Manton Reese, Rich Siegel, David Sparks, and Gene McDonald for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. You can find links to their work and ways to follow them online in our show notes. Of course, you can find those in your podcast app or at simplebeep.com slash episodes. We're always interested in hearing from all members of the Classic Mac community, and you can get in touch with us using the contact form at simplebeep.com or on Twitter at simple underscore beep.
We're also individually on Twitter. I'm at eCormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at Bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.